0: Welcome to episode two of Society 2.0. Today, we're going to discuss how AI is playing a role in predicting disease outbreaks around the world. It's also playing a role in how we develop new medicines. And it's also having an influence on how laws will be rewritten or created in the future because of the complexity that it introduces. So really excited to get into this. So let's get started. So I want to welcome Professor Anna santos rutschman to the podcast today. Welcome, Professor.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Oh, It's great to have you on. Can you tell us, I've given the high level introduction, but can you tell us a little bit about your background as it relates to emerging tech and tech and law?
1: Oh, sure. So um, I'm currently an assistant professor of law at St. Louis University um, School of Law, downtown St. Louis. Um, after having studied primarily intellectual property patents um, and health law. Um, So that's sort of where I um, started from as a student, a doctoral student. And I started consulting for a number of startup companies, um, doing work primarily in the developing world. Um, And from there, I moved on to uh, the World Health Organization, where I consulted during the Ebola and Zika. Um, crisis, so the development of new vaccines, which are a form of, of health technology. Um, from there, I went to Chicago, where I taught for two years um, at DePaul, um, and I started doing what I do uh, right now. So I focus on um, food and drug uh, regulation. I look a lot into what the FDA is doing with emerging technologies and more on the drug side of things and medical devices and uh, food. I focus on biotech. Um, I teach a seminar on on biotech here at SLU, um, and I I look at emerging technologies from different perspectives, but with a focus on health um, and emerging health technologies.
0: Yeah, when I was watching a, a video that you did with the Science and Tech Law Center in New York on Ebola and Zika, the lessons for a future outbreak. And you said a lot of interesting things there, but one of the things that really kind of struck me was how long drug companies need to invest in R&D. I think you said anywhere between like eight and 15 years with no real guarantee for something positive on the back end. And it's a tremendous investment.
1: So the economics of drug development, but I would say also medical devices um, and, and things like that, um, it, it's very complicated and numbers, um, you know, the numbers we quote might or might not be accurate. We know sometimes they're inflated, sometimes they've been under calculated. But the bottom line is, as you um, just mentioned, is that. When you approach um, any type of r and d, but particularly in the field of drug um, development, there's no guarantee of success. In fact, there's a guarantee that you will probably fail. and all the money, resources, time that you've put into that, um it's just not leading uh, anywhere. Sure, you learn from your failures, but um, that that might be you know small consolation and in terms of Maintaining a business, that's something you need to take um, into account. We do, it, it really depends on the technology we're talking um, about. Uh, it might take anywhere between eight years to 12 to even 15 uh, from lab research um, to the point where a drug enters um, the market. Um, it costs money to develop the drug itself. It costs money to bring the drug to the FDA to get regulatory approval. Um, so yes, um, it's, it's risky, it's time-consuming, and it's expensive. Um, and companies tend to factor that into um, the costs of um, drug development. So not just the successes, but the failures.
0: Are you, are you seeing any uh, trend in companies trying to adopt AI or specifically deep learning to help them improve the or, or, or speed up the drug creation process so that they can at least get to the FDA point or the trial point quicker and and basically fail quicker. And and, and so they can learn their lessons, move on. So the investment is shorter, but it's still obviously um, accurate, but to leverage technology to help speed along that process and mine through the data
1: we're we're seeing debt in a number of um of areas I, I think we're still at the very very beginning so this is one of the things that makes the field exciting is that um I, I think this is the dawn of it all not we're we're not there um, yet we're seeing some signs of what's possible um there are a number of different things you can do uh, with you know simple forms of um, artificial intelligence in this field um, think about diseases like cancer, which really it's not a, a unified disease, even if we talk about something like, say, lung cancer um, or pancreatic cancer. We're talking about diseases made of diseases. We're talking uh, about things that are extremely complex from an informational perspective. So using AI um, to establish connections between, um, you know, things, um, data, 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 as a human, you could just not process on your own. We're certainly doing that already. And the hope is that we'll keep on doing that. And this is not just on um, the side of the drug companies. So you you see um, federal initiatives that aim to collect data that will power this research. So not just pharmaceutical companies, big pharma or startups, but you, you're seeing the public sector doing this. Um, as well, and uh, a lot of people would say that there's an argument that the public sector is in a better place to collect this type of data. Uh, it will be more comprehensive. Um, it's it's probably also not going to be uh, perfect, and we can discuss um, that. But I, I I see that beyond the field of um, uh, of just big pharma looking uh, looking into this, and then you can um, use also artificial intelligence, not just to establish um, those connections and figure out how this compound will work particularly well We think for this subtype or for this um, subpopulation. Um, You can use uh, that in a more routine way uh, for diagnostics based on data that we already have. We don't have to unearth it. It's just a matter of aggregating it and sifting through it in ways we've not been able to do.
0: Yeah. I saw that uh, one of the articles that you had written, there was a a mention of it under the Obama administration. There was a, 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 Basically, uh, a, a program to collect DNA from Americans to help provide additional information and leverage that information for diagnostics. And I just recently read an article about how they're using AI to help predict uh, dengue fever outbreaks. Mm-hmm. And I, I found that it really interesting of, of being able to leverage the tool to look for characteristics or, or for things that might pop up around and say, hey, could this be a potential?
1: Yeah, and, and the initiative that you mentioned is still um, ongoing. So um, it was sponsored by Vice President Biden, and you might recall that he lost his son to brain cancer. Yeah. So cancer R&D became something and was already something that was uh, very um, dear to him. Um, and it, it really was one of the driving forces behind uh, this initiative. So um, the, the official label is precision medicine. The idea that fine, if you and I have a cold, probably will respond well to the same type of treatment. But the moment the diseases get a little bit more complex, that's not going to be the case. And again, cancer is emblematic of, of that. Uh, so the idea is that we're trying to get these more targeted uh, treatments, and for that matter, even diagnostics, um, responding precisely to the characteristics of subpopulations. And so that's the concept of precision medicine. What do you need to achieve that? Lots of data. So again, the machines can um, uncover those um, those connections so that's that initiative is already um, a few years old but it's ongoing um, it's promising I would just say it's we're still talking at a very small level one million people one even uh you know 10 or 100 million people that's really nothing uh, in terms of represent uh, representing um the, the disease populations uh, out there. So, again, it, it's a start. Uh, it's ongoing, but we're lacking on the data side. That's, that's a big thing.
0: Yeah. And there was another article that you wrote, and it talked about leveraging blockchain for medical data and, and how Europe is more taking the lead, like in Sweden. And, and of all places, I never thought Estonia. <laughs> uh, that just, when I read that, that 95% of their medical data is is electronic. I thought that was like, wow, Estonia is leading the way in the med- on the medical front. Is that something that we as a country, basically, and in, in Europe especially, should be leaning more on and trying to adopt a more, uh, I think you mentioned Mediledger, basically adopting a, a feature like Care Chain or Mediledger so we can share data more readily. Obviously, there's ethical and privacy issues that we need to keep in mind. that's a whole other ball of wax. Um, but is that something that should be a larger focus and be, there should be more discussion around that, uh, in the general public so we can get, we can make it more, be people more aware of the power that it brings.
1: So let me just, um, say this real quick. It's, uh, interesting that you had mentioned Sweden and Estonia. We're recording this episode, uh, via Skype, um, and Skype, uh, and, you know, a number of other uh, platforms are pretty much the product of uh, Estonian slash Swedish cooperation, right? Um, So they've been just great at innovating in the tech field and in IT. And what we are seeing in health is a byproduct of that, coupled with some um, strategic moves to prioritize um, the digitization of health records. But it's a byproduct of that. And you just Probably would never see that in a place like the U.S. It has to be a smaller uh, country because for you to say, "Hey, 99% of our health records are digitized," imagine doing that in in the U.S. So they, yeah. they have a much more manageable pool um, to deal with there, coupled again with that entrepreneurial success that they're known for, um, and again a strategic um, framework that they've been great um, at uh, at developing. So essentially, what we're seeing is out of these places, there are innovative. Uh, solutions again to address the problem of data collection and with blockchain also access to data so the idea that uh, you would have data that follows patients and anybody could you know if given access um, to the chain would be able to access that data as opposed to having the silos of data that we have now so a particular city or state might have competing systems to record to collect and manage data and they don't talk to one another And we're not talking about one or two or three systems we're talking sometimes dozens of different systems so clearly that does not work it does not work um if you go to uh, a different uh, hospital or provider and they don't know what has happened before so there's some repetition needed there there might be some uh, lacking information because you don't remember everything that has happened and they have no way to access that but, um also, again, if you're collecting data because you are you know searching for something and you don't quite know what it is, the more data you have um, the better. And when we talk about things like drug discovery, diagnostics, treatments, um, we need data not just from say clinical trials, but we need those electronic uh, records to be a part of it, uh, mobile health um, these days. you know we get a lot of information from that, things like even insurance claims, imagining Thai tying all um, this type of data together, then we would have a richer infrastructure on which we could just deploy these new tools. So AI um, searches and, and blockchain would be uh, a tool or will probably be a tool at least in the right environment um, for us to just, again, make that infrastructure for uh, health data richer than it currently is.
0: What do you think the biggest obstacle is to more wide widely wide adoption of those platforms and sharing of data?
1: Um, There's a number of things. Um, So take the case of um, blockchain. It's an emerging technology. Uh, We don't know what's going to happen with it. Just from a technology uh, perspective, it's uh, in its embryonic stages. Will it mature and in some into something that's uh, widely uh, used? That seems to be the current expectation. We just don't know. Is it the next shiny thing? Uh, is there uh, concerns that we're not addressing uh, right now? So, I mean, there are a number of question marks that surround any emerging technology. Um, so there's that to deal with. Assume we get past... Um, we get past those. Uh, you need players to cooperate, right? Again, the the importance of a strategic vision, um, as the one uh, that we see in places like Estonia or uh, or Sweden, that might be lacking. So take the US. There are 50 states and just so many providers. Uh, who is going to come up with? And that's why I use the word infrastructure with something that's meaningful. Um, that covers uh, a significant uh, number of patients and what happens if we have competing blockchains for certain types of records and you just move from one system to the other and the two systems don't talk again. So we can replicate all of our mistakes in implementing new technologies. They have this great potential, uh, but it's entirely possible that we replicate some of these mistakes. The data might be flawed. Already with artificial intelligence, we are worrying about this idea that, oh, if it's a machine sifting through data, the results are going to be non-biased. And we know that's not true. In fact, whatever biases we have right now and that um, color our, um, our decision making processes, you know, if we feed biased data to these machines, the outcome is probably not going to be as unbiased as we uh, would hope so. Um, so all of the mistakes that we've been making, all the shortcomings that we're facing today, we might just replicate those. So there's a level of caution that's necessary when addressing the promise of these technologies.
0: Yeah, I read your article about how Congress has taken the first steps towards regulating AI. And you talk a lot about the bias in AI. And all the articles I read, they all seem to have that same theme, that there's a real concern that you know, whatever, whoever's building the AI will build their own biases, um, conscious or unconscious into the technology. And there has to be a way to govern the AI in a way to understand. And it also leads to potential um, manipulation of information, Mm -hmm. unintended or intended. And so how do we protect, uh, I think you mentioned deep fakes in one of your articles and, to me, I see that as, a, as, as technology evolves, that that's probably going to be one of those extortion blackmail tools that people will be able to use because it will be so good and so hard to tell the difference.
1: Yeah. Uh, and, and when I say that Congress takes first steps towards uh, regulating, what I really mean is Congress is looking into it. And it might even be a good thing that Congress has yet to pass a law saying, let's address, you know, AI In a particular way, because, again, we don't fully understand this technology. We talk much more uh, about biases, as you pointed out in in the data Uh, today than we did, you know, a few years ago. So we're learning and it's probably a good thing that whatever. Uh, interventions, particularly at the regulatory level, are not taking place immediately, but that nonetheless we're seeking to understand this technology better. So I, again, as I mentioned, we're at um, the beginning, and we might not want certain entities to step in too soon. We might also not want, and because we're talking about how great it is to have centralized or integrated uh, systems uh, that collect all your data, but immediately privacy flags, you know, go up, yeah. um, and we need to have discussions that we're having in. A, bunch of other arenas, but we have to have discussions about, okay, how much of this data um, do you want your government, your state, private companies to control? So there's that discussion to be, uh, you know, had uh, on top of all the other um, issues that we've been uh, pointing out. So it's like there's a tension between we want things, uh, we want infrastructure to be broad. Um, Again, think about roads, right? We don't want them to just cover a particular uh, state and then be terrible the moment you cross uh, the border. Uh, but one thing, it's roads. Another one is uh, a highway of information, particularly things like health uh, data. So th- there's this inherent tension um, that we are not addressing uh, for the time being, but the design choices we make now will pretty much dictate um, you know, the future 20, um, 30 years from From now on, there there are other things also that uh, we need to take um, into account. Um, We've talked a little bit um, about the data data gathering uh, process and the mechanics of it all, but there are things in addition to privacy, which I've already uh, mentioned, there are things like liability, right? When things go wrong, which experience tells us they will, and a mistake is made based on data from a blockchain or based on an algorithm that was faulty and AI told you to do something and you, the doctor, the provider, you did it and turns out, you know, there were tremendous uh, consequences. How do we allocate uh, responsibility in this particular uh, field? Do we go after software developers? That's not what courts have traditionally done. Do we want to do that? Will that have chilling effects? Probably. So that's probably not the solution we want. But then again, what's the alternative? We don't want an un- uh, regulated uh, field or exempt from tort law, from liability rules. Um, we talked about drug discovery, which is uh, known for being incredibly expensive um, and time consuming, but so it is to develop a proper, uh, properly functioning AI um, algorithm. Um, and the set of laws that's designed to incentivize um, creativity or innovative, activity in that particular field, intellectual property, does not really function well if what you're doing is developing algorithms that will diagnose uh, disease just because of Supreme Court decisions that have greatly limited that. So we're struggling with a number of things. I mean, there's uh, it's it's uh, interesting and I think useful to think uh, about this in large, large strategic goals, but then you have a lot of problems. And I've just mentioned the regulatory slash legal ones to begin with.
0: Yeah. I mean, if, I mean, we, I know we have ways we can make data more anonymous, but there's, Mm -hmm. there's, we have to figure that out, as you said. And then we also have to figure out uh, when I, when I watched your video, you know, no one's really, nobody really thinks about during an outbreak, well, what's the intellectual property issues around it? You just, it just think, well, let's just solve a problem. But if there are potential lawsuits or, uh, you know, liabilities involved with, with, with a product that you release to help people out, all with good intentions, you know, there's things that need to be considered and how money transfers to different entities. And I think most of the general public doesn't think about that. They just think, hey, look, it's for the greater good. Don't worry about it. But companies need to protect themselves. And, 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 and when you mentioned the software developers, you know, I come from a background of software development. So that would have a chilling effect if you started saying, look, we're going to go after the software developers because they had a flawed algorithm. And again, that becomes complex because the developers are basically getting their, their information from, you know, the, the subject matter experts saying, hey, you, you give me the information and I'll program it. We've vetted it. We've tested it. It's gone through QA. It's gone through and somehow it got missed, whatever it was, or it was an outlier, an edge case. We just hit an edge case that no one planned for. And there needs to be a way to protect people who are tr- on the cutting edge of trying to protect us from disease, but also at the same time, make sure that people are protected from malpractice, but malpractice from an AI, which is a whole interesting subject alone, because if our doctors rely more and more on technology, where does that line get crossed of, well, Mm -hmm. the AI told me this is what we were going to do. And we're trusting the AI more than the doctor is more of a liaison between the patient and the, and the AI, which I'm not sure that's around the corner but it will be eventually at some point. I mean, IBM Watson is already taking a significant role in identifying characteristics across patients for cancers. And, wow. and so it's, it's going to become interesting. And I, I think I have children. The younger generations are way more trusting of technology than I ever was. And I'm in the technology industry. Mm-hmm. So I think the, the generations that will come after us will, be, will just in general be more trusting.
1: Yes. And I I think also on top of that, there will be a blend of things happening. So you have generations that will have grown up, you know, um, essentially thinking that we've been um, using cell phones, you know, cell phones that are actually computers for the history of humanity, and that's that's not true. And at the same time, you will have people making decisions about how we frame, you know, what you've just mentioned, uh, how we frame problems arising out of faulty algorithms or doctors that have followed instructions provided by uh, an algorithm. So you'll have, you, you have people trying to look at existing frameworks just to understand those problems and also to give them a, a legal um, framework and they might be um, older and not understand the technology uh fully they might be young and not understand the technology fully they might be you know anywhere uh, in, in the age um, uh, range and not understand older laws fully right or case uh, law uh, fully, courts might not do a good uh, job coming up with the proper analogies. Because in in many ways, when you think about uh, all of this, we've seen this phenomena before, just not with these particular technologies. We've seen um, doctors making mistakes, but we've also seen doctors looking at uh, what a study was suggesting following that, and the outcome was not the desired one. We've seen doctors Um, deciding to either administer or recommend the use of technologies. And I'm going to use the word technology here very, very broadly, but um, administering things like vaccines that we know are highly innovative. They were developed in the 20th century. And you know, some people would say it might kill you. Um, you might have a bad reaction. Bad things might happen to you while you're trying to prevent disease. And in in many ways, we've coped with that, right? Uh, we've had doctrines that have either sheltered uh, or exposed doctors to liability, depending, you know, on what we um, thought was uh, most appropriate um, for things like that. So, vac- I, I like to analogize uh, with vaccines because. At one point, they were almost like AI, right? Uh, they were not opaque as um, uh, a subset of AI um, is um, is going to be. Uh, but again, you were doing something that was highly innovative, but it could kill you, right? Um, and what what happened? You know, the doctor that told you, "Yes, I'm going to give you this vaccine," would have to explain to you all the consequences. You know, you're taking a risk here. I, as your doctor, think that this is a risk worth uh, taking. And, you know, the state is saying you actually have to do this, right? Um, and we just chose to explain to explain that cost-benefit analysis to the public um, in general and say, well, if everybody is liable for this, we're going to have a big problem. Manufacturers will not uh, have vaccines available uh, for us to, to deploy when needed. Um, herd immunity, you know, it's a snowballing effect. Right. So we made a very deliberate decision to say we don't want to choke this market, um, you know, through just the application of laws that would have done that. And we changed the regime.
0: Do you think um, this is new law that will be that will have to govern this or is it modification of existing laws? Because it it's kind of like in, in my field of technology, if you had said. 20 years ago, oh, I'll have a job in social media. People would be like, what's, what's that? You know, right. so, and so now it's pretty much, you know, pervasive. It's part of everybody, everyday life. So what, where do we stand? How do we know what we don't know and plan for it in the future from a standpoint of, of law? Uh, because that seems to evolve very slowly over, over time. And, it, and it, it's, yeah. court, it's case precedence that, that is, that helps, dictate some of the things that happen. Um, so how do we, how do we plan for that? So we give people the feeling that, Hey, I'm going to invest in this. Um, and then secondly, on this, it's kind of a a tangent is, you know, to to think about, you know, why haven't we really, there hasn't been a lot of change or, or introduction of new antibiotics. Does that relate it to lack of willingness to get into it because of the lack of, of, potential payout in the end Or is it just, we've run the course and we haven't been able to find anything new?
1: Okay, so let me um, tackle two different things here. First, do we need immediately new laws addressing all this? I'm sure at some point for, you know, every one of the technologies we've been discussing, there will be targeted laws or at least regulations on the part of agencies, say like the Food and Drug Administration when uh, new technologies come to market. But I, for one, uh, don't really believe in very reactive uh, legal systems. The point being that if every time against the shiny object uh, concept, if every time we have something uh, from a technological perspective that's promising, we decide to regulate that field, even with the good intention, let's make it clear, let's make it easy for people to innovate in, in that particular field. Typically, results are not good when we behave like that. Um, prime example for that is intellectual property in which we try to uh, at one point over regulate a lot uh, a various and turned messy for lack of a a, a better um, world and you see something with uh, you see that with something as simple uh, from a technological perspective these days as movies or even books the doctrines we have to regulate um, the activity of movie making are sometimes strange and they kind of same thing with music right um so i don't really believe in reacting immediately to any kind of technology technological change particularly these might be life-saving technologies or technologies that affect your health so for good and for uh for bad we have again we have a lot of things that we already know from a policy perspective from a legal perspective that we could um, either expand or uh, tailor to realities we don't yet know so for instance uh, medical software gets regulated by the FDA as a medical device. Now, the actual actual regulations might and will be specific to AI um, algorithms. FDA has indicated they're moving in um, in that direction, but you really don't need to create a separate regulatory um, category. Or at least, not now, because there's something we can analogize to that will function. Now, we, you have other problems, right? Uh, if it's something that's uh, it's, uh, it's classified in a way that requires you to run clinical trials, good luck understanding fight like algorithms. So there's a number of problems, and I'm not saying that all the uh, boxes we have, um, particularly in law, will work extraordinarily uh, well. But sometimes it's better to start with what we have and then regulate accordingly down the road um, than to do the reverse. So you mentioned um, also uh, the problem of innovation in the field of antibiotics. Um, And I would like to mention the work of Kevin Utterson out of uh, Boston University. Um, He runs something called um, CARBAX, which is an accelerated Accelerator designed to fund uh, research um, on uh, antibiotic resistance. That's uh, a tremendous problem we're uh, facing, and it's poised to um, keep uh, growing. We've just stopped responding to a lot of the antibiotics that we've um, developed uh, over uh, over the past century or so, and um, that's that's probably uh, a problem caused by a number of different. Uh, Factors, but the bottom line is, if we're becoming, uh, if we're not responding to existing antibiotics, and if it's becoming more and more expensive to develop um, antibiotics uh, in, in this context, then pharmaceutical companies have less of an incentive to be operating in this field. So we're seeing very particular initiatives like um, Kevin's um, that. Try to uh, sponsor uh, drug development through novel mechanisms Mm -hmm. rather than the typical "Hey, we're going to rely on patents and FDA exclusivities" because that's how you just that that's your default system for ensuring that we have some levels of uh, R and D in these fields.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. And the reason I brought it up is because it it almost feels like that's the silent the silent killer in the behind the scenes where we worry about the larger diseases like cancer and heart disease, but, and the outbreaks like Ebola and Zika, but it, it almost seems like something very innocuous or innocuous that could come and get us all because we just can't fight it. And something we never even thought about, or we're less resistant to, or, or the antibiotics are less resistant. And so we're, we're going to succumb to something that we just never suspected. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean?
1: That's also the well now we travel more, meaning we carry viruses in ways that we hadn't before. So um and Zika, for instance, um illustrated that very, very well. Uh we've known about Zika since the forties. Um and we never thought one it could mutate this way, two it could have the consequences. Um it it does uh with some um subpopulations and we just we didn't dismiss it. We just, we were not aware of it. And suddenly here it is knocking at our door, even in a country like the U S and we tended to think of it as something that happened, you know, far, far away um, from us. So that's we're we're going to have uh, a lot of problems with viruses and disease that might not be as complex as cancer as you were um, saying, but it's something we uh, were not prepared for. And Globalization has just made the world a cauldron for diseases that we don't know how to fight or we don't know exist yet. The WHO has a list of priority pathogens. So, Zika and Ebola are now um, on that that list. They just think we're going to have outbreaks. And that's true. We're uh, facing an Ebola outbreak again. uh, It's not close to the U.S., but it's it's, uh, a recurrent thing. And on that list... um, there is space for an unknown pathogen. So something we're not aware of, but we predict it will, um, you know, affect us pretty soon. And if we're not aware of it, we're not developing uh, drugs, tests, diagnostics, factor control uh, measures um, targeting it. So we will face the unknown. And this is where, uh, as with antibiotic uh, resistance, this is where um, our default regimes for making sure that we have appropriate levels of R&D, if ever we get um, to such levels, um, all of that crumbles. So that's why I thought it was so fascinating to work with um, Ebola and Zika uh, R&D and particularly licensing aspects uh, of um, emerging technologies in that particular case, vaccines, uh, Because you have to respond pretty fast to a public health crisis, and we have systems that are designed to take years and years to produce something that's ready for testing, right? So we're, again, facing an Ebola outbreak in 2018. At the end of 2018, we're still trying to test those vaccines that we started developing back in 2015, uh, and even before that. So uh, it's just the timeline uh, that we typically operate under from an R&D perspective, and for that matter, from a legal perspective, just how much time it takes to negotiate transfer of rights from one party to the other, access to materials and uh, the like. It just does not respond well to reality and how quickly these viruses and diseases yeah, it's, and propagate.
0: It's really interesting because, I mean... I have no medical background at all, but I, I look at it and I think, what impact can globalization have when populations that are not normally vaccinated, like Western civilization particularly, intermingle with, with vaccinated groups? And does that help accelerate or introduce new mutations that we hadn't thought of? And that's the that's the the thing that we, that, that's the unknown virus that we, that you were just talking about. And, and it could be, that has no effect at all. But is it, w- with the, all the travel that we have and the intermingling that we have and the, and the rapid growth of populations throughout the world, um, what effect will that have? It almost feels like AI will be, early stages of it will be used more for just tracking and trying to predict outbreaks because of the, 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 it's, as you said, it takes so long to actually create a drug that could be, you know, maybe effective to help, to help at least lower mortality rates. Not even, I think you said in your one lecture that maybe you can get it down to 30% if you can call that good, you know? So, you know, that's, are, are we, we're almost looking at like, let's just get it okay at some point versus we're not going to fix it for quite some time because it's just so hard to track.
1: Yes. Um, so the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention here in the U.S., uh, out of Atlanta, uh they're already uh, piloting AI-based um, programs to just predict uh, outbreaks. Um, and you said, are U.S. if these are going to, uh, to increase? Because, again, we travel so much. It's such an interconnected uh, world. And I think the answer is yes, and it seems to be, uh, what most experts on the field um, think these days. So a lot of the viruses and bacteria we deal with um, today, outbreaks are typically backtraced to when we as uh you know, collectively, civilization, humanity. they' are vectors when we settled down and started farming, right? Uh, and viruses jumped from animals to humans. And lo and behold, you suddenly had a village with a hundred people and there's an outbreak. And instead of a hundred, then you had a thousand people. And now it's, the world is your oyster and not in a good way, right? Um So I think that will escalate. Because if you think in terms of progression, we've been familiar with um, outbreaks throughout human history. Uh, and now they you just have pathogens traveling much, much faster. Promising scenarios like the CDC, more and more institutions and countries can again gather data much more easily. And just deploy different predictive techniques some people would not even call some of these techniques AI they you know they fall under the umbrella very complex um, math uh, but under a generous uh, definition of AI you know some of this would be AI uh, programs that we're now using uh, to predict uh, outbreaks and these programs are getting better and better uh, again, this is the beginning. This is the dawn of it all. Uh, but these programs are getting better. So we'll get some help there. But at the same time, diseases will get nastier and they will infect more and more people. And we had it was this was uh, not a U.S. citizen, but with Ebola. Uh, last time we had um, a nearly global um, outbreak. So in in, uh, uh, in 2014, 16, we had somebody die uh, of Ebola in the U.S. That was the first death yeah, I remember in the US that. soil um, yeah. in Texas. Um, so, yes, we will be able to predict things slightly marginally better, but diseases will travel faster, right? Um, so, again... Yeah, our
0: technology has become um, a delivery mechanism. Right. So right. so it's a now different it's... different type of technology. Yeah. So we never think about, how, so now it's, we can help, maybe, maybe we can marginally predict better, but how do we isolate? Cause that's the second part. Well, how do I, how do I isolate these groups? And sometimes when you find out you have a potential outbreak, it, it's already spread beyond a border that you expect it. So now isolation becomes, or containment becomes much more difficult and challenging.
1: Yes. Um, and I've been working primarily on the technology side of things. And again, by technology, I mean things uh, like computer programs that help you predict these um, events, but also, again, vaccine technology. So I look at it from a perspective, primarily when I, when I research and when I write, I look at it from a perspective of how do we make sure that we quickly, whatever technology, whatever vaccines or drugs we have, uh, out there, even if they're patented, how do we make sure that they just get to the populations in need? So that that's been my uh, primary area of research. But let me just mention the fantastic work that some of my colleagues are doing. So, for instance, uh, Rob Gatter, uh, who's an expert on public uh, health law, has been looking at things that stem a lot out of the fear factor associated with massive outbreaks like the one we had with. Um, Ebola. So yes, you do want to contain um, the spread of the virus, but you don't want people to panic and you don't want institutions again, like say the CDC uh, or at large, the US government to react to alt- all outbreaks alt- as if they were the same. So um, Rob Gatter has uh, made the case that we overreacted with Ebola because we were telling people, hey, you have to go into quarantine. And um, in cases in which you actually did not have to. Um, Mm. You were not displaying the symptoms that you would be uh, if you were infected. So at that point you were not contagious, uh, or even uh, it's not, you have to distinguish between you're infected and you're contagious and you're asymptomatic. And we just neglect, you know, basic concepts like that. And that interferes with your everyday life with uh, a bunch of rights that you have. Is that just
0: fear? Um, Is that just, do you think that that's political fear, misinformation? It kind of goes back, like anti vaxxing is is huge in this country now, um, and some of it's misinformation. Um, and and I, I think that's that causes a larger problem uh, for children going to school and 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 not protecting them against diseases that are, you know, we've we've cured for many many years now. But it seems like the misinformation is going to be a big factor. In the future uh, because people are just afraid to make decisions that could create an enormous amount of liability
1: mm-hmm. right um so in the example i was giving you the ball of rob has shown that this was misinformation tied to the fear factor you have to act very fast uh you're very concerned that if you as an institution if you don't do anything then 40,000 people will get infected right and then what that will escalate into um, something that's completely out of control, but most of it was misinformation, Rob, has shown in the case of, of Ebola. With things like vaccines, we have the perennial problem of uh, vaccines and vaccines markets. If I give you a vaccine and you never contract the disease, you don't value debt, right? It's right. kind of invisible yeah. um to you. There's a there's a health game there, but you have no way of it's
0: like, like the know, polio no vaccine. Way. Like it's so old from a gener from the generational perspective people don't even know my kids wouldn't even know if I mentioned like what's polio. <laughs> it's and, like and well yet, people died have, from it.
1: <laughs> right. And if you happen to live in say Newark, New Jersey, uh in the fifties, you would have Dreaded summer approaching, right? Because yeah. you're a kids and your own kids would have seen their friends die, become paralyzed, go through terrible, terrible experience with iron lungs. So my grandmother
0: terrified. used to, we we used to have public pools in our neighborhood, and my grandmother would say, "Oh, you shouldn't go to the public pool; you're going to get polio." Like, so for her, right. that was a big fear. Um, I mean, obviously, she was born in the, in the twenties, but for her, it was you know, yeah, you can't go in public pools; you might catch polio. And that, at that point, we already had the vaccine, obviously but mm-hmm. it was a lack of education and information from her. And it also, it, you know, I think a little bit from an old generation, well, that's kind of voodoo. How do you know, like it's going to work? Um, and,
1: and I mean, if you think about it for a moment from not a scientific perspective, it's like, I don't want you to get uh, sick because there's this particularly you know, nasty virus, right? Let me put some of it inside you. I mean, I'm sure, you know, at some basic level that's, that's terrifying. And yet a lot of things that we do to, um, cure you are terrifying yet they they work they're risky sure we've we've you know uh talked about that uh but that invisible gain from vaccines and how hard it is sometimes to just estimate what that gain is or how it translates you know um socially economically what what's there to be gained, you just can't really uh, estimate things properly. And if you're somebody who has doubts about vaccines and vaccination, you just don't see it. So it's a different type of misinformation. right? Uh, And vaccines are a market that's perennially underfunded because of that. there were the liability issues that I was mentioning um, early on that was a deterrent to uh, vaccine R&D as well. And you just don't make much money out of it because I'll give you one or two um, doses of vaccine and that's it. It's not like one of those blockbuster drugs that you take every week or every month right? Uh, or they're very expensive, but you take them for a year. And you know, like a hepatitis
0: dead. C drug. Yeah. Right.
1: And and some of the biologics we're seeing um, on the market uh, right now, there's a couple of them that are really, really promising. They are extremely expensive, but arguably it's still better to pay, you know, $800,000 for a course of treatment than just manage the disease through a patient's life. I'm not saying this is an ideal scenario, mm-hmm. but there are some things out there that companies are motivated to invest in. And, you know, if you had hep C and you know, there's something that manages or cures your uh, disease, then you see that as a patient. Whereas with the vaccine, um, if the vaccine works, you never see the disease, but you just forget about it. And yeah, it's think- more
0: preventative. It's like, for, I think for most people, as a parent, it's a nightmare taking your kid for vaccines because you have to give them a needle and they scream and they cry. But it's like, it's preventative maintenance, essentially. You know, you're you're going to give them this and so they won't get this horrible disease that existed that the last person had it probably before the parent was born, so right. it, it, it is kind of an unforeseen thing you just okay i'm gonna I'm gonna prevent you from getting these things most likely I mean it's not hundred percent but most likely sure. um and hope that you don't have any side effects. I know as a parent you know you, the first three days after the vaccine you're you're watching you're watching your kid for signs of uh autism and you know you're you're and a lot of that again is misinformation, but you're you know you're freaking out. Uh, as a parent, but you you, you know that there's a potential greater good here for your kid to not catch, you know, deadly diseases, but it's still not, it's not a fun process.
1: Yeah. And the scientific literature has disproved that link between vaccines and autism, right? So there's no convincing evidence. And again, it's, science it's our best opinion at a particular moment in history given all the tools we have so that link has been disproved and yet autism continues to be uh you know part of every single uh anti-vaccination uh movements their discourse relies a lot uh, on that and i think it's
0: because of the the constant asterisk science has you know it's always you know the best information we have at the current moment that asterisk gives people the fuel to continue something you know
1: but oddly enough, there are very real risks associated with vaccines. You might uh you know anaphylactic shock that might happen right and and those we know it has happened, and like things like autism, so vaccines are uh, funny that way because there are real risks again, according to scientific paradigms and imagined ones, and it's the ones that are actually not um accurate again under current scientific standards that get the most um, that get the most uh visibility in terms yeah. of the public. But I, I uh, remember at one point uh, I, I did some work in, um, in West Africa, which is one of those places where you get a ton of vaccines before you board uh, the plane. And one in particular, I was told if you get a headache, you have to go to the doctor because it might be something um, problematic. And I went to urgent care and they said, no, you're going to ER because we need to have you checked out. This is serious. Turns out I had a headache. It was just a plane headache, and still doctors were worried. So there are very real risks with vaccines that people need to understand. And I fully understood that when I I chose to have that uh, vaccine, there was a risk. It was a minimal risk, but there was a risk um, that I was incurring. And I just valued that, uh, you know, the the chance of having um, that immunization higher than the risk that I was incurring in. Uh, And then in this particular field, there are some imagined um, risks. Um, that nonetheless captured the public imagination. And that will pretty much color any discussion we'll have about uh, vaccines when it should not.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, along the lines of, of, this is kind of getting off that subject a little bit, but you had mentioned in one of your articles about the rise of of AI and its accessibility could increase inequality around the world. So, because certain countries might not have access to it because of the the sheer amount of money that needs to be invested to make it work. Um, How do we, I mean, from your perspective, how do we ensure that one, we eliminate as much bias as possible, but share that information? Because in a way you would think this should be more widely available or make it easier for for everyone to have access to information because it's now digitized, you know, in Mm -hmm. in a way. But in, in other ways, you know, third world countries or, you know, countries that are trying to emerge out of third world status, it may be difficult because they have other priorities at the moment, you know, just trying to get their economy started. How do they, how do we make sure that we keep, we don't make the world more inequitable?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, If only we could, right? Yeah. Um. Already, there's a number of things um, that you can do, and this does not have to involve any AI form of technology, uh, but um, there Some countries, some developing countries, what we used to call the least developed um, countries, they were treated differently when it came to implementing laws such like intellectual property uh, laws. They were given a period of time to adjust to transition into adopting the same type of regime that we have here in the U.S. or in Europe. Or in Japan, there are mechanisms to trigger compulsory licensing that would apply to certain drugs. So if a country say in Africa or Southeast Asia desperately needs a drug, there would be uh, there are mechanisms to just make sure that we get the drug where it needs to be. Um, There are voluntary mechanisms. Uh, You can just license or cross-license drugs in ways that make them affordable. You can engage in price discrimination, say, fine, I'm a pharmaceutical company, I cannot afford to not charge anything, but, you know, I'll just reduce prices for that particular market. Um, So there are already tools in place that in theory would uh, at least curb some of that inequality, they are not efficiently used. There are some countries that are pretty good at threatening things like compulsory licensing, um, but those seem to be bigger economies within the developing world, like India, Thailand, and Brazil. So there's uh, still a group of unprotected, for lack of a better um, word, unprotected countries that really, you know, all the mechanisms in international uh, law are just not... uh, are just not sufficient to make sure that we get the drugs that the populations in those countries need. Uh, What ends up happening uh, is that sometimes uh, certain research projects targeting a particular neglected disease that's you know, at least so far is not affecting primarily the U.S. Uh, And right now I'm thinking of things like malaria. For instance, there are funders uh, for... R&D in some very specific uh, fields. Uh, so Bill uh, and Melinda Gates, their foundation, has famously funded a lot, a lot of malaria uh, R&D. But this comes at a cost, right? So we're targeting one disease, and there's a myriad of diseases um, out there. And uh, as researchers often, uh, you know, put it in this particular field, without Gates, they would be dead, right? There's no funding. There's no sustained funding for some of these um, you know, very, um, ad hoc projects. So we have, uh, ways to respond, um, to, uh, this pervasive inequality, but they are, um, they're not very strong and we need to get better at that.
0: Wow. That's amazing with that, without those philanthropic individuals that some of these things would just be, just fall off the wayside. I mean, just nobody,
1: and arguably somebody else can pick up, um, you know, where a funder has left, but that's just not a sustainable uh, yeah, model. Yeah. And, it, you know, you think about uh, things that specifically target the developing world. Uh, we have something in Europe called the Innovative Medicines Initiative, um, which is extremely well uh, funded and has been doing amazing work for a decade now uh, in terms of just bringing together different partners uh, across borders that probably would not cooperate were it not for this umbrella organization that um, helps them come together and and, uh, funds them. Um, And they operate uh, on a model that, you know, lets us know they're going to be around for a while, but we don't know if they'll be here in 2025 or 2035. So that sense of continuity and the sense that we have institutions, funders, you know, or mix of uh, players that are looking at r&d uh, on diseases that traditionally have not affected the united states or uh, europe we just don't have those long term mechanisms as we have uh, for some diseases with some degree of success uh, here or in in europe you know that pharmaceutical companies will be around for uh, you know for a while we just don't know that about some of of these uh, ad hoc initiatives. And that's very troublesome.
0: Hmm. So we're getting close to the top of the hour, but I guess, the, 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 I guess one final note that I'd, I'd ask you if do you think there's anything that the general public can do to help elevate the topics of, about vaccination research and drug research. And is there anything that, you know, politics kind of dominates the news in, in the U S anymore. It's, it's just disturbing. But is there anything that we can do in general to help elevate that conversation?
1: And, you know, I would throw in also literally any emerging technology that affects your health. And probably this could be said in many other domains, but I would throw in the development of blockchain, AI in general, data uh, sharing. We should all collectively be concerned about about these issues and you can't really uh you know specialize on 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 all of them but you should be minimally informed uh at least you know come the time to vote and we've been through this uh recently and we have seen that there's uh, a lot of noise so i'll call it that a lot of noise around proposals to bring uh the cost of drugs down um and there might or might not be some Uh, political uh, will across the spectrum to collaborate on this issue but we're left with so many other things that you and I have been discussing and as we've seen Congress has been looking at some of these issues but it's still not really doing anything which might be good for now but might not be what we desire a few years down um, the road Um, so I think the general public needs to be uh, educated and I don't mean this in a paternalistic uh, way I I, I just think you were talking about how uh, some uh, generations just take the use of technology for granted. We just need to make sure that people know what, and I don't, again, I, I don't mean at this point younger versus older generations. We just need to make sure that information is out there in ways uh, that are much more extensive than what we've been doing so far. Um, my contribution is uh, is very small. I train my students to uh, see problems from different angles and i write uh, articles such as the ones you've read and there's a growing number of people doing that and collectively there are more voices out there for you to you know listen to and reject or not right so i think that divide is uh, is good people like you now have podcasts Uh, misinformation is also a byproduct of the widespread use of social media but also, there's more information uh, for you to sift through. So there are smaller things, um, and and then we occasionally will get help from um, from sources say like Hollywood. Now you have movies with uh, stars like uh, Gwyneth Paltrow and Marion Cotillard that are focused on the spread of viruses. I mean, would that have been popular uh, a while ago? It would be more much you know, a sci-fi movie. So public awareness is growing. And I just think that the same mechanism that sometimes we describe as mechanisms of doom and fake news and this, and that will help us uh, just, you know, start this conversation or take it to the next level.
0: Well, Anna, I thank you for your time. It's been really enlightening conversation. Um, and I'm sure our listeners found it that way too. Uh, keep doing the great work that you're doing. And I'm probably going to reach out to some of the people that you mentioned because it'd be interesting to get their perspectives too. Because uh, yeah. I, I just think it's something we don't talk about. Uh, I, I spoke to a couple of people w- when I said I was going to have you on. They said, well, that's, that's more about law and intellectual property. I was like, no, no. I said, you understand. The technology is, is driving medicine. And, and as you said, technology in a broad term, in a broad definition. Uh, there are so many different technologies. And so I think it's important that we open the discussion up a little bit more and and, let, and educate the public not in a fearful way, but to understand the, the intricacies of medicine and, and drug development and the challenges of uh, equitable, di- equitable distribution of those drugs, understanding the impacts, uh, and even understanding w- the impacts on companies, that they're not this evil entity all the time, that they have, they have employees to, 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 to account for, uh, and, and they're in the business to make money but to try to have an ethical way of of making sure that happens. So go ahead. I'm sorry.
1: No, I'm just, thank you so much for um, having me. Um, I I think um, there's a number of us uh, who share this view, which is um, you go to law school to learn about the, you know, how the world works uh, given a set of tools. There's so much out there that uh, those tools we use to make laws and policy, they, they affect a number of things and we should be talking interdisciplinarily. We should be talking uh, with as many people as possible. So thank you for giving me the chance, uh, you know, just to talk with you today um, and to get to our listeners. But I really think that's crucial. Um, just broadly speaking, when addressing health problems and emerging technologies, I cannot be a law professor. Yeah. I need to be somebody who's attuned to a number of things. Um, my students, um, I hope they will behave in the same way whatever they end up doing they're not not just practicing law they're not just advising companies or the government um they are part of something much more intricate than that and they need to be aware of that and respond accordingly
0: I agree and again thank you Anna and I hope you enjoy the rest of your week
1: <laughs> thank you too Bob
0: take care well I'll tell you what one thing I learned in this episode is that being a lawyer isn't just being a lawyer. Uh, the knowledge that you have to have outside of that one discipline is pretty amazing. And and Dr. Rutschman was just a fascinating person to interview. I really hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. And if there's anyone else you think I can interview that has information about the topics that we talked about today, send them my way. You can reach me on Twitter at, at Societywire or via email at Bob at And as always, I enjoyed this conversation and I look forward to seeing you next week.